This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. This week, President Biden oversaw his first Veterans Day ceremonies as Commander-in-Chief. Thursday was the first Veterans Day in 20 years without a massive U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan. And for the first time in nearly a century, visitors were allowed to walk on the plaza and lay flowers in front of the tomb of the unknown soldier. The president talking about vets as, quote, the very spine of America and people to whom we have a sacred obligation as a nation. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Folks, uh, being president of the United States, you are afforded many opportunities to try to express your love, commitment, and admiration for the American people. And I must say to you that the single greatest honor I have been afforded as president is to stand before so many of you, those Medal of Honor winners out there, and talk about Veterans Day and veterans. I want to welcome all the cabinet members and honored guests joining us today, including the father of our Secretary of State, who served in the Army Air Corps during World War II, Ambassador Donald Blinken, whose birthday is today. Happy birthday. Thank you for your service to our country. And I just want to tell you, I know you're a little younger than I am, but, uh, you know, I've adopted the attitude of the great Negro at the time, pitcher in the Negro Leagues, went on to become a great pitcher in the pros in the Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson. His name was Satchel Paige. And Satchel Paige, on his 47th birthday, pitched a win against Chicago. <laughs> and all the press went in and said, Satch, it's amazing. 47 years old, no one's ever, ever pitched a win at age 47. How do you feel about being 47? He said, boys, that's not how I look at it. I said, how do you look at it, Satch? I said, I look at it this way. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? I'm 50 years old, and the ambassador's 47. But all kidding aside, Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your service during World War II, as well as your service as an ambassador. And thank you for raising such a fine man, Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State. To all our veterans, past and present, we thank you, we honor you, and we remember always what you've done for us. I'd like to recognize one of our national heroes who is here today, Medal of Honor recipient, Mr. Brian Thacker. During the Vietnam War, then First Lieutenant Thacker put the safety of his fellow troops above his own, providing cover fire against an attacking enemy, and even calling in artillery fire on his own position so our forces had a better chance to withdraw. Wounded, unable to leave the area, he evaded capture for eight days until finally, federal friendly forces retook the position. 
Yours is a remarkable story. It'll never be forgotten. We'll also never forget the stories of American leaders and icons we've lost recently, who shaped our nation in ways that are hard to measure. I've lost, like many of you, three good friends in the last month. General Colin Powell, a child of immigrants who grew up to be the joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of State, a man who was a friend but who earned the universal respect of Americans and people for his leadership in uniform and out. And a guy who became good friends and many times I was in and out of Iraq as a vice president and a senator, General Ray Ordierno, who I met multiple times in Iraq and who did so much to help get us where we are today and who always put the troops and his veterans first. It was an honor to have my son, Major Biden, serve under his command at the time. And my friend and colleague who was mentioned already, United States Senator Max Cleland, who as a triple amputee, knew the cost of war as well as anyone could ever know it, and went on to champion the dignity and care of Americans and wounded veterans throughout his life. We lost all three of these incredible veterans in the last several weeks, and our hearts go out to their families. These are stories that inspire generation after generation of Americans to step forward to defend our nation. And today, we pay homage to the unrelenting bravery and dedication that distinguishes all those who have earned the title of American veteran. It's an honor that not only a small percentage of Americans can claim, and one that marks those who are able to claim it as brothers and sisters. It's a badge of courage that unites across all ages, regardless of background, because to be a veteran is to have endured and survived challenges most Americans will never know. You've come through the trials and testing, brave dangers and deprivations, faced down tragic realities of war and death. And you've done it for us. You've done it for America, to defend and serve American values, to protect our country and our Constitution against all enemies, and to lay a stronger, more secure foundation on which future generations can continue to build a more perfect union. Each of our veterans is a link in a proud chain of patriots that has stood in the defense of our country from Bunker Hill to Bellow Woods, Gettysburg to Iwo Jima, Chosen Reservoir to Konar Valley. Each, each understood the price of freedom and each shouldered that burden on our behalf. Our veterans represent the best of America. You are the very spine of America, not just the backbone, you're the spine of this country. And all of us, all of us owe you. And so on Veterans Day, and every day we honor that great debt and recommit ourselves to keeping our sacred obligation as a nation to honor what you've done. We have many obligations to our children, to our elderly, to those truly in need. But I've gotten in trouble way back when I was a young senator for saying we only have one truly sacred obligation. We have many obligations but one truly sacred obligation to properly prepare those and equip those who we send into harm's way and care for them and their families 
while they're both deployed and when they return home. This is a lifetime sacred commitment. It never expires. And for me and for Jill and for the entire Biden family is personal. When Bo was deployed to Iraq after spending six months in Kosovo as an assistant U.S. attorney trying to help, trying to set up a criminal justice system, I got a call from him one day. He said, Dad, what are you doing Friday? And I said, what do you need, hon? I'm, what do you need? He said, I'd like you to pin my bars on. I said, what in the heck have you done? He said, someone's got to finish these wars, Dad. True story. Jill and I learned what it meant to pray every day for the safe return of someone you love. So many of you have done that. Our grandkids learned what it meant to have their dad overseas in a war zone instead of back at home for a year, tucking him into bed and reading that story every night. Thousands of Americans, tens of thousands, have had that experience. As the English poet John Milton wrote, they also serve who only stand and wait. So all the mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, spouses, all those who stand alongside our veterans and their families, caregivers, survivors, you are the solid steel spine that bears up under every burden, the courageous heart that rises every challenge. We've asked so much of you for so long, and our nation is grateful. For two decades, the lives of our service members and their families and veterans have been shaped by the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Since 9-11, hundreds of thousands of Americans have served. So many are still serving today in harm's way, and we cannot forget them. The American people are forever grateful and in awe of what you've accomplished. But in fulfilling their mission, so many veterans and their families and caregivers have been through hell. Some facing deployments after deployment, spending months and years away from their families, missing birthdays, anniversaries, and collections. I remember one of the last times I flew into Iraq in the so-called silver bullet. I remember walking up to this, the cockpit and the crew masters along with the pilots were up there. And I said, how many of you, is this your first tour? No one raised their hand. There were five people. Second tour, no one raised their hand. Third tour, two raised their hand. Fourth tour, two raised their hand. Fifth, one raised their hand. Folks, on Veterans Day, we have to always remember that there's nothing low risk or low cost about war for the women and men who fight it. I carry with me in my pocket every single day. I have my staffs to check with the Defense Department. In the back of my schedule, I have U.S. daily troops in Afghanistan killed and wounded, U.S. daily troops in Iraq killed and wounded, 52,000. 323, not roughly 53,000, every one of these individuals has a family, has a unit at home. 53,000, 
323 American servicemen and women wounded in the conflicts of Iraq and Afghanistan. 7,074 gave their lives the last full measure of the devotion. Untold, thousands more return home, as our secretary can tell you, with unseen psychological wounds of war. The enduring grief borne by our gold star families. These are the cost of war that they'll carry, will carry as a nation for decades to come. And all veterans, service members, their families, caregivers, survivors, I want you to know that our administration is going to meet the sacred obligation that we owe you. We're going to work with Congress, Republicans and Democrats together to make sure our veterans receive the world-class benefits that they've earned and meet the sacred, specific care, specific needs that they each individually need. That means expanding presumptive conditions for toxic exposure, particulate matter, including Agent Orange and burn pits. We're going to keep pushing on this front to be more nimble and responsive, reviewing all the data and evidence to determine additional presumptive conditions that make sure our veterans don't have to wait to get the care they need. It also means prioritizing mental health care that's necessary to treat the invisible wounds that so many of our veterans carry, including pursuing our newly released comprehensive public health strategy to reduce military and veteran suicides. I want to say clearly to all our veterans, if you're struggling, you're so used to never asking for anything. If you're struggling, reach out. Call Veterans Crisis Line. We're having trouble thinking about things. It's no different than if you had a wound in your arm. And make, it's also making sure that the growing population of women and LGBTQ plus veterans receive appropriate services and support. As we continue our efforts to defeat the pandemic and build back better, it means keeping the needs of veterans front and center. The American Rescue Plan included $17 billion to support VA's COVID-19 response, to get vaccination, vaccine shots in arms as fast as possible, and to fund programs that provide rapid retraining assistance for veterans who may have lost their jobs in the pandemic, housing assistance, debt forgiveness, and to invest in improving VA facilities and the living conditions of vulnerable veterans. Through Jill's work of joining forces, we're also working to support our veterans and military families, survivors and caregivers, so they can have what they need to thrive. They deserve it. As Secretary McDonough noted, this Veterans Day also marks the centennial of one of the most hallowed American monuments, the Tomb of the Unknowns. A hundred years ago today, an American soldier of the First World War, as the tomb says, known but to God, end of quote, completed the voyage from an unidentified battlefield in France over the rough Atlantic seas here to Arlington National Cemetery. He lay in state under the Capitol Rotunda for two days on the same flint that held the body of Lincoln as 90,000 Americans came to pay respects. On the final leg of his journey, he was escorted from the Capitol by the President of the United States, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, members of Congress, General Pershing, and the Chiefs of Staff, 
Medal of Honor recipients, all walking, as the Washington Post said, processing without parallel. To give honor due to American servicemen, American service members. Not just the anonymous soul today entombed in gleaming marble, but the generations of Americans who dared all, risked all, gave all for the cause of freedom. To commemorate in the wounds of the member, in the words of a member of Congress who proposed the legislation creating the memorial, an American warrior, quote, this is the quote, who typifies the soul of America. You veterans of the soul of America, America's soul. It's why our veterans have always fought, always been willing to put themselves on the line. That the first unknown lies now with his brethren, unnamed warriors from later wars, fellow patriots who picked up the mantle of honor and made it their burden. And today, a hundred years later, we keep a sacred watch over their graves. Generations of elite sentinels have taken the post, pledging their eternal vigilance. We lay wreaths, we renew our oath, we stand in solemn awe of such fidelity. Because for us to keep faith with American veterans, we must never forget exactly what was given us. What each of them is willing to put on the line for us. We must never forget that it is the mighty arm of the American warrior, never bending, never breaking, never yielding, generation after generation, has secured for us the blessings of a nation that still stands today as a beacon of liberty, democracy, and justice around the world. God bless you all. God bless all American veterans and those who proudly earn that title. And may God protect our troops. Thank you. Coming up, the Reporter Roundtable. This is connected to Chicago on 890 WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And welcome to the Reporter Roundtable, part of Connected to Chicago. With us today, Heather Sharon from WTTW Chicago Tonight, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, and Greg Hines of Crane's Chicago Business. Guys, let's get right, right into it, and you all can just jump in uh, when you want to. But uh, let's uh, start off with um, the, the latest with maps, and maybe, Greg, you can lead the discussion discussion on this. Um, the governor has yet to sign off on this, right? Yeah, the, uh, the governor presumably is going to sign a bill. Uh, yes, he does. Um, but there was a little bit of a wrinkle this week. Uh, the legal challenge looks a little bit better than I think some people might have expected. Uh, both uh, uh, both uh, the Republicans, who you wouldn't expect to like this Democratic map, but more significantly, MALDEF, a big uh, Latino legal defense group, uh, challenged the map, say they don't have enough Latino districts. And in the case of Metro East, uh, an insufficient number of African-American majority districts, um, that could cause some problems based on uh, prior court rulings, uh, but uh, and Pritzker at this point probably doesn't have the chance to amend the map. Uh, he he uh, it was on his desk when he got back from his trip to uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, he probably realistically has a choice only of vetoing it, which he's not going to do, or signing it, and then we'll see what happens in court. 
Yeah, and we're talking about the state legislative districts there, um, the ones that govern the, the boundaries of the House and, and Illinois Senate. And I do think that uh, there are some really strong arguments here, but strong arguments have been made in the past, and uh, they've been tossed aside by the courts. But, you know, uh, Republicans and this uh, Mexican-American uh, legal defense team has uh, have both argued that the Democratic map provides fewer districts with a majority Latino citizen voting age population than what was in place for the last decade, what's in place now. And so uh, there's an argument here that with the um, Latino uh, population expanding uh, more rapidly than any other population, that indeed they should have more seats, especially uh, in the Illinois House. Um, in the map, it would go from five now to four seats in the House and three to two in the Senate. It's kind of a head-scratcher that, that that would be the way it would play out um, when you obviously see such a burgeoning Latinx population in Chicago. Is there any implications here? I'm hearing, too, as well, that, you know, already uh, some people, when it comes to the congressional map, uh, maybe there's already uh, somebody that's thrown their hat in the ring. I, I think I read that uh, Alderman Viegas is one of those who m may want uh, to transition and, and uh, come up with the congressional bid. Um, are there going to be a lot of people coming out of the woodwork? Oh, I think that uh, I'm not sure you've seen all the Latino candidates yet. It's conceivable there's, there could be four or five. The question is whether how many Anglo well, white candidates are going to run. Um, uh, this district uh, is only somewhere in the what mid 40s percentages uh, in terms of uh, a voting age population Latino, and in terms of citizens who are eligible to vote is probably less than that. I know it's less than that. Uh, conceivably, you could have a white guy or a white woman um, win this thing. Uh, if there's one white person and uh, and six or seven Latinos running. That's what I'd keep an yeah. eye out for. Yeah, I mean, that's a good reflection of history in Chicago, too, because, um, as you know, we had Jane Byrne and Rich Daly running against a guy named Harold Washington, and he ran right between the middle as, as Byrne and Daly split up the votes for mayor. So... Um, that is a real possibility here if you overload the ballot. Uh, uh, really, a, a long-shot case that came out of the U.S. Supreme Court this last week actually was declined by the Supreme Court, dealt with the issue of stacking the ballot uh, with uh, a 2016 primary uh, against uh, House then House Speaker Michael Madigan, a guy named Jason Gonzalez, uh, ran against him. And while he filed his petitions to run against Madigan, who was the only one who had filed petitions to run that time before, uh, that time in 2016, right after, in, in like the small space of five to ten minutes before before closing time at the State Board of Elections, two people were filed to who had Hispanic names um, that uh, were viewed uh, by, by a lot of people, including Gonzalez, as shams. So during a deposition that Mike Madigan himself uh, had, there was... Uh, 
the question of whether you tried to stack the ballot. He, of course, said that he didn't. But uh, there were a lot of indications, including uh, judges' uh, written decisions saying that um, at least Madigan at least knew about it. But the, the point was, and in his deposition, Madigan said, yeah, I do better if I have more people on the ballot uh, so that, you know, he would have more people dividing the competition. And that is a long way of explaining one of the things that uh, Greg was pointing out there, that if you have a lot of Latinx people running for one congressional seat and you end up with a strong white or African-American candidate, you're going to draw a lot of of votes uh, for the one single candidate versus uh, a number of votes could be split up by Hispanic candidates. Another thing we've been seeing here in the news uh, as of late has been this infrastructure bill. Uh, the president finally got it done, to his credit. Uh, there was some bipartisan support. Uh, and I think Illinois is set to receive around $17 billion. Um it, What's it going to be used for? Infrastructure, or are there some pet projects in there as well? Uh, Greg? Well, there's all kinds of stuff here. Sure, there's some pet, some pet projects here. We're talking, uh, uh, we're talking politicians. We're talking a big pot of money. Uh, so, you know, stuff is going to happen. But for the most part, this is, these are things that we really need. Um, and that 17 figure, 17 billion dollar figure may be low. That's kind of what we're guaranteed. In addition to that, there's huge, bigger pots of money that local projects can compete for. And what I'd watch for, in no particular order, is uh, does this make the uh, the extension, a long proposed extension of the CTA's red line to, from 95th Street to the South City Limits viable. I think it does. It may get money. Um, uh, how much of a pop does this, does this give Amtrak as it talks about adding lots of service out of, out of uh, uh, the Chicago area to other Midwestern cities? Um, uh, does the city of Chicago finally get a big pot of money for lead pipe replacement, which is an absolutely critical, literally life and death matter that's been ignored for far too long? There's a lot of money in there for that. Uh, uh, there's uh, uh, hundreds of million dollars for uh, electric charging vehicle charging stations in Illinois, uh, so that we can buy electric cars if, if and not use uh, polluting gasoline engines. Um, you know, and there's uh, that's just uh, that's just kind of the the, the top line stuff. There's money for there's a lot of money for O'Hare in there. Um, there's uh, the state gets uh, more than uh, uh, ten billion dollars just for new roads and bridges. I mean, think of we all know roads where, where uh, you take your life in your hand if you drive on the potholes. Where bridges that look so creaky they're going to fall <laughs> over. We're not going to have money to replace that. Uh, there was a good indication of the kind of scrum that's going to come up this week when the, when the president of the Senate, Don Harmon, the Speaker of the House, the City Transportation Commissioner, and a whole bunch of labor leaders all gathered and said they want the reconstruction of the Eisenhower Expressway from the from the Burn Exchange all the way up to uh, the hillside to be at the top of the list. So there's lots and lots and lots more on top that, but uh, it, it, there's plenty of stuff in there. Now, how about that on rebuilding the Ike? I think... Um <laughs> I've I've always thought that if you just get rid of those uh, left exit lanes at uh, Austin and Harlem, uh, you, you'd probably get rid of a lot of the congestion. Um, Heather, what's those what do we brutal. know about? Yeah. yeah, those are. I mean, that's the bottleneck there. Uh, Heather, what do we know about you know this this uh, this bill and 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 putting money into the Ike and and maybe adding an extra lane? 
Yeah. So, you know, nobody wants to be on the Eisenhower during rush hour. Um, most Chicagoans, I think, do whatever they can to avoid it if possible. And the idea is to um, remove that bottleneck, which really happens sort of between Austin and 25th to speed people traveling to the western suburbs and into downtown Chicago. Um, you know, there's also going to be sort of um, efforts to rebuild the CTA train tracks because, of course, the Forest Park branch of the CTA Blue Line runs between the Eisenhower, the you know, the two directions of the Eisenhower. And this is really an area of the city that's seen tremendous growth um, in the past decade. And so it, it could really have, uh, officials are hoping, a catalytic effect in sort of speeding people in and out. However, you are going to see a fair amount of pushback from people who want these this infrastructure money to be used not to expand vehicle car trip travel, but instead to focus on more sustainable methods of transportation. So uh, that's a needle that the governor is going to have to walk when this all sort of works out through the process, because he's been, you know, leading the way. He, you know, he went to Scotland for the climate change conference. So he's really got to walk a, a, a fine line between helping people sort of not have to sit in traffic every day and also, um using this money in a way that doesn't just add to the burden of pollution on the West Side, which, as we know, um, disproportionately bears a, a burden of that air pollution. Yeah, I think I saw something even perhaps considering high-occupancy vehicle lanes uh, as, as part of the plan, but I guess we'll wait and see how that um, plays out. Um, there was a little bit of a back and forth, I guess, uh, billionaire Ken Griffin pledging to back a Pritzker challenger, and Pritzker said, ah, you don't want his hand puppet uh, in the mix. Um, Ray, what's uh, the latest uh, with uh, Ken Griffin, and uh, who would the challenger be at this point? I, I don't know. Well, that's the big question. Um, Ken Griffin came out and said he was all in to, to beat the, the governor. Of course, Ken Griffin is Republican, and he's pumped in tens of millions of dollars in just the last round of campaigns in Illinois. And he helped defeat the effort to uh, have a graduated income tax uh, that is what Governor Pritzker wanted, and it was a question that had to be voted on by voters, and they both spent tens of millions of dollars of their own money to try to uh, get their side, and Griffin won. Uh, people voted it down, having a, a tax that would tax the highest uh, wage earners the most. And so uh, this time, uh, Griffin said he, he's all in to back a candidate to run against Governor J.B. Pritzker, the Democrat. And uh, Pritzker is basically saying, well, we don't want uh, uh, Ken Griffin's uh, stooge to, we want to, to see somebody who can uh, do everything by themselves. But Griffin is the guy who has the money. And if uh, people can get past one billionaire supporting a candidate to, to run versus another billionaire dipping into his own pocket to hold the, the governorship, then um, if, the, if the Griffin effort supports somebody that is credible, then we could have a Donnybrook here that would be mind-blowing in the overall cost. 
Yeah, I would add to that. Uh, we all find this entertaining. I certainly do. The fact that billionaires going after each other has a, has, a, has a lot of yucks to it. But what I find interesting and what I'd be worried about if I were the Pritzker people uh, is that what uh, what uh, Griffin has, has, uh, has decided to focus on as a wedge issue exploding crime rates. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, makes people forget their party orientation when they get scared and really and really vote for uh, in, in some unpredictable ways. If uh, if a credible Republican candidate, Ray is right, were to seize on crime and really start to scream and yell about it, even though crime really is a local problem uh, for the city more than more than for the state, uh, but uh, Prisker has some involvement there. He's the head of the state. I think there's some, I mean, there's some potential there if it's handled the right way. Heather, I know you've been following the numbers. We're recording this on uh, Friday, which is this uh, vaccine awareness day that's been declared by uh, Chicago Public Schools. And uh, I I know that uh, over at WTTW, you've been following the numbers as far as kids and vaccinations. That's what this day is supposed to be about. Parents getting their kids vaccinated. Uh, Where are we? Well, um, the vaccines have been approved for um, kids aged 5 to 11 for about a week now. And um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 Chicago kids were vaccinated before today's push to get kids vaccinated. Um, And I think that um, we heard from Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Dr. Allison Arwady, the commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, that they're hopeful that enough kids will get vaccinated vaccinated and, you know, bring their parents along, you know, and get their get those booster vaccine doses if they're eligible um, before the holidays really start. Um, Because uh, in the past week, there has been about a 24 percent increase in the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Chicago. And Dr. Arwady really for months, dating all the way back to the early spring, has been warning that that the city and the state and the country really was was bound to see a surge in cases once the weather really turned cold. And we've seen the first snowfall today, and so it is that kind of year, and we seem to be moving in an upward trajectory. The question is, how how bad will it get, or will um, Chicago's relatively high level of vaccination keep keep it under control? Um, I, we also have to watch parts of um, other parts of Illinois, especially uh, southern Illinois and, and western Illinois, which is significant less vaccinated than Chicago. So if there is a surge, that is where we're going to see it first. And right now, um, the hot spot in the state is is the area around Rockford. And um, a lot of public health officials are are very concerned that a surge is coming, um, and they're hopeful that the approval of the vaccines for kids will help tamp that down and prevent school closures, which we haven't really seen a lot of or widespread school closures so far this school year. Greg, was there any pushback from the business community? I'm just curious. I mean, parents basically had a week to try and find something to do with their kids if they couldn't get the time off. Or or, do you think a lot of businesses were like, okay, you got to do what you got to do? Well, the business community is no more monolithic than any other part of society. But I would would say as a general rule, um, business leaders want to do their business. They want to make money, and you can't do that if you got your staff constantly out because they're sick. Um, uh, and there are a few cases to the contrary, but uh, companies like uh, like Chicago Base United, for instance, it was a leader nationally in, in saying, hey, if you want to work for United, you got to get vaccinated. Um, 
I think that's eminently sensible. Uh, yes, I understand that people have some concerns, but uh, but uh, you don't have a, you don't have a right to walk around and be a be a lifetime bomb that can make somebody else sick. Um, and I think that's I think that's the majority sentiment in the business community. But like I said, it's not monolithic. Yeah, and you had a story, Greg, about Cinespace, which. Uh, boy, I remember when it became a big deal, and uh, it really has put a spotlight on Chicago. Uh, it, it, did they uh, did they sell, or what's the story there? You, I think you had the story in Cranes. Yeah, the story is that broke uh, about an hour before we're taping this, is that uh, Senate Space, you're right, literally put Chicago on the map. It's a good news story that, frankly, hasn't received enough local coverage. Uh, I mean, for instance, if you watch uh, Chicago Fire, Chicago Met, if you watched uh, Empire, um, just to give you a, a few examples, um, if you watch The Shy, they're all produced here, and they're all produced at uh, this this uh, southwest side facility. There's two facilities now, but the main one is a former Ryerson steel plant. Called Cinespace, it has 55 sound stages now, and and by some counts, we're the, we're the, this is the biggest production center now uh, east of Los Angeles. Um, movies in, in Atlanta get a lot of, get a lot of uh, of um, uh, exposure and publicity, but Chicago has developed a niche in TV production. And what's what's driving this is that. Uh, COVID accentuated this is is you don't just get TV products anymore by NBC, ABC, and CBS. Uh, there's there's cable networks and, and increasingly stuff is streamed by uh, by networks. Each of them has to have product and it has to be made somewhere. So there's this huge demand for for film facilities and that's where Cinespace comes in. And they shrewdly invest in whatever. So now, in my understanding, is that the owning uh, the owning. Uh, Family, uh, uh, the Pizios family is is cashing out, as a lot of uh, family-owned film studios have in other areas. It's being bought by uh, a big buyout company that owns a lot of of, uh, of entertainment properties, including Creative Arts Agency in uh, Los Angeles, the big talent agency. Um, they claim, my understanding is that they're going to stay here and they're going to expand. Uh, so it provides more capital for a rapidly local, growing local business that claims it's responsible for twenty thousand jobs here. Good news. Yeah, that is good news. Uh, I remember being touted I, when they opened up. Was it 2011? And it was just like very transformative for, for Chicago in, in that way. We'll leave it there. My thanks to Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Up next, Lauren Cohn. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. <laughs> This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Losing the Bears could have a huge economic impact on Chicago. Civic Federation President Lawrence Massal joining me to discuss the financial ramifications. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Why do you think Mayor Lightfoot should try and keep the Bears? I just think it's a, a reasonable response to a civic institution. An NFL football team is a very significant, not just psyche-wise for the city of Chicago, but it also draws a lot of tourism. It draws a lot of visitors to the lakefront, and it does it in times when we don't have visitors coming, the colder weather now, November, December, and it, hopefully into January, we would have NFL activities. But the real reason I think the, the city needs to respond, the Bears have made a uh, option on land in Arlington Heights, they're not requiring the city of Arlington Heights to buy the land. They're not requiring the city of Arlington Heights to finance the stadium. So at a pretty low bar for the city of Chicago to come back and say, 
either come, we'll rebuild Soldier Field, which is over 20 years old, and that's about the useful life of an NFL stadium. If we can't do that inside the colonnades, the city should be offering other locations and helping um, assemble the land necessary for the Bears to have their stadium for the future. Well, it's a good point, but the publicity the mayor put out is, look, the city doesn't have the funds, so she's open to ideas. That When you talk about it, it sounds pretty simple. Well, we're not talking about the city financing the stadium or even the city buying the land necessarily. All we're saying is that there should be other options. I think everyone who looks at the the Bears Stadium, Soldier Field, which is owned by the Chicago Park District, and which is over 20 years old now, is the smallest stadium in the NFL. And we're the third biggest market in the NFL. So it's reasonable that the Bears would want a bigger stadium. If that can't be done in the colonnades, there are other options. There's a lot of underdeveloped land in the southwest sides of the city, for example. But really, it's just to make make the Bears aware that they're wanted in Chicago and that there are opportunities for them to stay. If they end up making the decision to go forward to Arlington Heights, it won't be the end of the world for Chicago. We'll still have a strong economic engine in our business, but we will be missing really the opportunity to say we're an NFL city. Tonight, when the Bears um, are playing on Monday Night Football, it's free advertising when it's in Chicago, when they're showing the lakefront. Um, They're away this year. They're away tonight, but basically it's a marketing opportunity. So not just a civic loss, but also an economic one. The reason why the Arlington Heights is excited about having the Bears is because it's going to bring visitors to their city. It's going to help fund entertainment areas there, restaurants, hotels, all those things that Chicago depends on in order to have a vibrant downtown. You know, it's interesting when you talk about tourism. I walk the river uh, a lot and I always see the boats are filled and people are down there and you think, you know, during these harder economic times or coming out of the pandemic, that tourism might be light, but it seems like we're doing pretty well, even though the city's always, you know, in need of funds. Well, definitely, I think the, we're seeing across the country that the, um, tourism is rebounding. What we're not seeing yet is the convention industry, McCormick Place, the um, the business travel that is somewhat optional for people. Is that going to come back, and when is it going to come back? Yes, Chicago has a lot of assets. Chicago has a lot of investments in it, but part of it is having a series of different attractions that bring different people. So the fans for a Bears game um, come not just from the region around it, Illinois, but they also come from out of state, the fans for the opposing team, the uh, family of the opposing team players. All of those people tend to go to our restaurants, our hotels, and even our cultural institutions, museums, on the days running up to the actual game. Is there a dollar figure to put on it? And if the Bears were to move to Arlington Heights, how much the city would lose in money? No, there isn't a specific dollar amount, right, because the Bears don't own Soldier Field, right? The Chicago Park District does. The Chicago Park District right now owes approximately, well, it's actually a combination between the Illinois Sports Facility Authority, which in 2001 made a almost $400 million investment in renovating Soldier Field. Soldier Field now has about $120 million outstanding in debt through this um, Sports Facility Authority. They refinanced it just last year, extending the debt out to 2032. While the Bears have a lease that runs out to 2033, um, there is an exit clause there. But really, the important part is there's enough time now to offer the Bears different options. If they can't rebuild, and that's up to the engineers and the architects, if you can't rebuild Soldier Field in a way that provides the Bears the stadium of the future, provide them some land opportunities in Chicago that they could consider as well. Do you have a number one pick for what site you'd like to see it at? 
No, I think really the way the, the sites that we are going to now have to compete with Arlington Park are ones that have superior access to the fan base, better transportation, better um, access. And that can be anywhere within the city because we have so much sunken infrastructure through our public transit system, through our highway system um, as well. All right, Civic Federation President Lawrence Massal, as always, thanks so much for joining me. And I'm Lauren Cohen for Connected to Chicago. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks again to Ray Long of the Tribune, Greg Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Also, thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.